Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to his heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to them, him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, so that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your, on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from, your, from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and stuck, struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. 
all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, so that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. But Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of the flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Well, one of my favorite foods is breakfast cereal. I can enjoy a bowl of cereal anytime, I assure you. Morning, afternoon, evening, middle of the night. You can imagine one of the most enjoyable parts of grocery shopping for me is a cereal aisle because there are myriad options. I mean, there are so many delectable choices. Wheaties, honey bunches, Rice Krispies, Cocoa Puffs. Could go on and on. And I love having those options. And they're not, there's nothing wrong with those options. We all love options. I mean, if there's anything our culture preaches today, it's that options are good. There shouldn't just be one way to do things. The more open-minded you are, the more willing you are to embrace other people and their beliefs, the better person you are. Being dogmatic about something isn't loving or accepting. It's hate-filled and evil. And nowhere is this more clear, I think, than in our view of God. If we're asked what we think about God, we are free to pick from a range of options. I like to think about God as being nice. Or if it works for you to believe that, then that's great. I support you. Or I believe all gods are true. Or I believe in, in no God at all. It seems like we can think of God however we like as long as we don't say somebody else's view of God is wrong. 
So can there be objective truth about God? Is the God of the Bible the same, for example, as Allah? I mean, can we really know God personally at all? We've been spending our Sunday mornings over the past several months studying through the book of Exodus. Exodus is the true story of the nation of Israel in slavery to Egypt back in the 1400s B.C. And so far, we've seen Exodus shaping up to be a war of gods. So Pharaoh, this ruler of Egypt, is seen by Egypt to be the son of the gods. But now he's come face to face with the God of Israel, this, this Yahweh. And in response to Yahweh's command to let Israel go, Pharaoh has scoffed. So remember in chapter 5, verse 2, he said, Who is the Lord? I should obey his voice. I do not know the Lord. He's ignorant. He has no plans to obey another God, particularly a God his slaves worship. Well, if you remember, Yahweh is the personal name of God of the God of Israel. It's represented in your English translations as Lord, all caps. Yahweh, we find, has a plan in face of Pharaoh's rebellion. So in chapter 7, verse 5, he told Moses, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So God is saying in both his deliverance of Israel and his judgment of Egypt, He's going to reveal what he's like. He's going to reveal himself. And this morning, we see that kind of self-revealing process really begin. Who is the Lord? Is he just another option among a pantheon, a, a serial aisle of gods? Or is he greater? Is there a God who is alone, the sovereign over everything? So let's see three things about Yahweh in the passage Ashley has just read so wonderfully for us. First, the Lord is judge. Sounds familiar, right? We've been saying that a lot recently. The Lord is savior, second point. And finally, the theme of our service in our third point, the Lord is the one true God. All right, so first, the Lord is judge. So the passage we've just heard read, we see God begin to roll out judgment on the nation of Egypt. So over the next few chapters, this judgment we'll find will come in 10 successive stages. Uh, what have been called the 10 plagues, or I think more rightfully called the 10 strikes or the 10 signs and wonders. Because these signs are not only meant to judge, but to point to who God is. They're signs to ultimately reveal this God of Israel and what his character is like. And ultimately, in a few weeks, we're going to see the ultimate description and revelation of God's name, this Yahweh, is the Exodus event itself, when he shows himself to be the God who delivers his people. But as we venture into the description of these plagues, we're going to find they're incredibly vivid, and they accelerate in severity. And ultimately, they function as warning. So each one, as it gets worse and worse, is going to say, Pharaoh, do you want to keep doing this? They're all warnings, and they warn Pharaoh that unless he repents and lets God's people go, he's going to be judged. It's clear to see that these plagues are not mere natural phenomena. So, for example, the, the blood in the Nile is not just because at that point the Nile was churning up red mud, as some have speculated. The narrative that is read here presents itself 
as the work of God. Look there in chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses. That's the way each of these ten signs is introduced. These are signs straight from the lips of Yahweh. So as Moses and Aaron communicate warnings to Pharaoh and raise the very staff of God to inflict the plagues, they're showing again and again this is not their power at work. That staff is not just a magic wand. They're trying to wave around to get results. It's a symbol of God's authority. They're acting on the behalf of the Lord. They're standing in for this judge, executing his condemnation with his authority. So let's look at these signs briefly. Look at that first sign in verses 14 through 25. So Moses and Aaron stand on the bank of the Nile, the bank of the very river where Moses' life was spared a few chapters back, and they give this ultimatum to Pharaoh, let my people go. But then they say, Pharaoh, you've, you've just disobeyed this, and you're going to continue to. So they say in verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. By the judgment that's coming, Pharaoh's going to realize who is God and who isn't God. Moses and Aaron tell Pharaoh what's going to happen, and then that very thing happens. In verses 20 through 21, this Nile River is turned to blood. This vital part of Egyptian life is become undrinkable. Here in this first plague, the Lord goes right after the lifeblood, no pun intended, the lifeblood of Egypt. He's turning the water that is the center of their civilization that they so desperately need into this impotent, or what's that word? Impotable drug, or blood, right? So Desmond Alexander, one commentator, writes, their source of life becomes a symbol of death. It's a severe first warning to Pharaoh, right? Yahweh is not anyone to be trifled with. He will reveal who he is and the power of his authority. He will not hold back. The epicenter of Egyptian life has now become the epicenter of God's judgment. And then beginning of chapter 8, the next sign rolls in. So Pharaoh is again warned that if he doesn't obey, there's going to be judgment. And God commences to perform another wonder, striking Egypt with this amphibious assault, right? Frogs come up out of the Nile and invade literally everything. Houses, beds, ovens, kneading bowls. I, 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 it's getting gross, folks. I mean, you can't even make a loaf of bread now without being reminded that God's judging you. And, and here, for the first time, Pharaoh asks, please stop, right? He asks for the plague to be rolled back. There in verse 8, he shows us his first slight glimpse of weakness. So he asks Moses to pray for him. Moses does. God graciously pulls back his judgment. But verse 16, the plagues continue. Now the, the frogs have been piled up in smelly heaps, kind of these decaying monuments to Pharaoh's shame out in public. But it's going to get worse. So Aaron next strikes the dust and gnats come up on the whole land. Gnats, you know, annoying insects of the summer, right? That must have been terrible, but I don't know if these were actually gnats. It's a good tr maybe a good translation, but it's debated that these, these plagues, these strikes are actually growing from things that are on the land, like frogs, into things that are swarming in the air. And so I think these gnats, and, and many commentators say the same, are crawling insects, lice. 
which somehow makes this even more disgusting, right? But whatever the case, they wreak havoc on Egypt. Then finally in verse 20, here comes the fourth plague. Swarms of flies filling the land of Egypt. That word is the same as the word in, in chapter 1 where it says the Israelites multiplied and filled Egypt. And now, ironically, it's God's judgment that's filling Egypt. And Pharaoh again seems penitent there, yet again hardens his heart. Next week, we're going to spend, Lord willing, more time thinking about Pharaoh's heart. That's going to be the crux of our study next week. But for this week, we're, we're looking at God's intention for these plagues. And for now, let's see God revealing himself to Egypt. He is the powerful, sovereign judge. The authority of his staff, wielded by his servants, is strong enough to send the whole of this immensely powerful nation into utter turmoil. I was struck, as I read this passage this week, that this judgment is not containable either. It's comprehensive. Over and over and over again, we see those words, all, all, all. Everything stinks. Everything's ruined. God's, God's revealing his comprehensive judgment. He's revealing what he's like when confronted with rebellion. And frankly, it's terrible. It's terrible in that true sense of that word and that it inspires terror. Increasingly in the Egyptians as they respond in horror to what God is doing. Pharaoh will continue to rebel against this God, this Yahweh. There will be consequences, and they're not going to be pretty. So I wonder, are you okay with God being like that? I mean, as you read the very gruesome details of this judgment played out in Egypt, is this the God you want to believe in? Or do you prefer a more vanilla God? Less vindictive, vindictive, right? I think we need to be honest with ourselves, church. Regardless of what we think of God, this is who he is. This is who he's revealed himself to be. He is a severe judge, and he will not overlook any sort of rebellion. You know what? I think we want a God like this. Not for ourselves, of course. But when we're confronted with something exceedingly evil, something disgusting, something like, say, in a high school attack last week in Parkland, Florida, we desperately want a God like this. A God who is a judge. A God who will not let any evil go unpunished. When something like Parkland, Florida happens, a vanilla judge, a vanilla God, he just won't cut, cut it for us. Justice must be done, and God is judge. All right, the second thing we see revealed about God here is that he is Savior. So back in chapter 3, when Yahweh revealed his name to Moses, we saw there were really two, you might remember this if you were here, there are really two main ways to understand what Yahweh means. All right? First, it's sort of defined as I am who I am, pointing to God's power and self-existence and supreme authority over everything. But remember, the, the second thing that we saw that Yahweh means is a God of steadfast love. So in his mercy, 
God had made a promise back in Genesis with a man named Abram that he would bless him and his descendants, those descendants being the very people of Israel here in Egypt, saying he would protect them. He would bring them into a land of their own. He would bless the world through them. And if you remember, he staked his name to that. When he said, I will bless you, he was using the definition of his name, I am. And he was staking his promise on his name. He was saying, my character as God is dependent on my promise and vice versa. Meaning, he will bless them no matter what. He will be with them. Because reneging on that promise would mean reneging on his own character, his own godness. And so as we see his name, his character sort of described and shown in object lessons in these ten signs, these ten plagues, we should expect to see his steadfast love, shouldn't we? Not just his judgment. We'll look there in chapter 8, verse 22. Yahweh assures Pharaoh that he will continue to bring judgment, but for the fourth plague, he says something different. He's going to spare his people. He says, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Listen, that you may know that I am the Lord. So not only will Pharaoh see God's power by his judgment, but also by his salvation of Israel. We'll see next week that Pharaoh actually goes and sends people to scout out Israel. Is God really doing this? Yes, he is. Verse 23, it's exactly what he does. He creates a division between Israel and Egypt. He splits them up into two groups. He says, I have my people, and Pharaoh, you have your people. And that's going to make all the difference. And so when the, the flies begin to cover Egypt, his people are spared. And that distinction is made crystal clear. God has been faithful not only to judge Egypt, but to deliver Israel. He's not only this powerful judge, he's this merciful savior. His covenant mercy is strong. It will not waver. If you're here and you're not a Christian, don't miss this aspect of the character of God. He's not only the judge, he is also a savior. And so that means he will not hold back his justice but he will also pour out his mercy on those on whom he desires to show it. I mean, just imagine those, those swarms of flies descending on Egypt like this thick sheet of blackness. And then see Goshen, the land of the Israelites, enjoying crisp, clean air. And see God's mercy. He's God of both justice and mercy. And as we saw last week, nowhere is that seen more clearly than at the cross. Hundreds of years later, God would send his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus would die this gruesome death on the cross, taking on himself God's gruesome judgment that we see portrayed so little here. He took it all. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, just considering these first four plagues is just disgusting. It undoes us because this is horrible. 
These plagues point to a God, a holy God, who is so fierce in his perfection that he will not tolerate sin or rebellion. As the author of the book of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But now consider, friends, that that's you. That's me. That's a judgment we deserve. Your sin, my sin, is deserving of this sort of judgment. It's not just Pharaoh. We are under the wrath of God. How terrifying is that? Look to Christ. What must we do? Look to Christ. Because incredibly, all the horror of God's judgment that's just just prefigured here that they picture for us here and exponentially more was placed on Christ. Jesus willingly suffered the full judgment of God for anyone who would trust in him. And so if you will trust in Christ, when judgment like this comes raining down, it will not come down on you. You will not find yourself in Egypt. You will find yourself in Goshen. You will not find yourself under the terrible wrath of God. You will find yourself sheltered in the loving embrace of Jesus, the one who took wrath for you. Turn and believe. And brothers and sisters, Christians, I know we talk about it every week, but we need to. It doesn't get old. Just allow the weight of God's judgment seen here in Exodus to just come cascading onto your soul. Feel its terror. And then see that terror heaped on Christ instead of you. See him dying for you. Do you see his love? Do you see what he's done for you? See it and rejoice again. Sing for joy that this great God humbled himself even to give his own life for you. The Lord is judge. The Lord is savior. Finally, the Lord is the one true God. This is really the overall point that these plagues are making. They're pointing to Yahweh and revealing his character as this one true God. One of the places we see this most clearly is the magicians, right? There in verse, at chapter 7, verse 22, uh, they successfully change water to blood. That's not nothing. Uh, but notice they, they can't change God's strike, can they? They can't be like, oh, he turned water into blood. I'm going to turn it back into water. They're just mimicking what he does in a smaller way. But mimic it, they do. There in chapter 8, verse 7, they do so again with the frogs. I'm sure that made everybody happy. Not like they didn't have enough frogs already. But as the, the signs intensify, these magicians' evil powers begin to weaken. And there in verse 18, uh, they try to make gnats come out of the dust, but they can't. They're bumping up against their inherent ungodness. I mean, that's what it means to not be God, right? You can't. God can. There in verse 19, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. 
they're recognizing they're not the most powerful thing anymore. And it, one of the most humorous parts of the plagues is next week when we consider the, the magicians. They can't even stand up anymore. So great is their power in the face of Yahweh. Another theme that shows us the Lord is the one true God throughout uh, these signs and wonders is the purpose for which God is going to deliver his people, right? Notice he, he doesn't want to bring them out of bondage just to set them free to have the good life, right? You go to Canaan, you stay in Egypt if it's working for you, why don't you try out some other place in the Sinai Peninsula? No. He has a very specific plan for this deliverance. He says, let my people go, dot, 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 that they may serve me. And so there's a contrast being set up here. The Israelites are in Egypt to serve, right? That's precisely why they're there. But it's not God that they're serving. It's Pharaoh. He's their ruler, their authority, their judge. But now God is coming, and he's commanding that Pharaoh submit and let them go to worship this greater one, this greater authority. You see another reason why Pharaoh is so resistant. This isn't just a matter of trading hired hands to another monarch. It's about trading allegiance, trading worship. If this happens, Pharaoh is no longer going to be the God served. It's going to be Yahweh. He is the one true God, and he demands the service of his people. He demands their worship and their honor. And finally, overall, church family, this passage shows us that God is the one true God because we just see his incredible, unmatched sovereignty, don't we? We've seen that all throughout Exodus and nowhere more clearly so far than here. I love verse 10 of chapter 8. You know, studying through it this, this passage this week, I was like, this is going to be fun, right? But then I come across this verse and it blows me away. Moses says, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. These signs reveal God's character, and it's not the character of just another God in the long list of Egyptian deities. This God, this Yahweh, he's different. He alone is God. He is the God above all gods. He is the king above all kings, the Lord above all all lords. I mean, do you see how, how often Moses tells Pharaoh the details of the judgment that's coming before it even comes? Uh, for example, there in chapter 7, he tells Pharaoh there will be blood, which is a great line, right? Fish will die, it's going to stink, and you're not going to be able to drink. And then in verse 21, he makes sure that all those things are read out again as taking place. There was blood. Fish did die. It did really stink, and they can't drink. It's clear. Pharaoh's not in charge. He's not calling the shots. He's not God. Yahweh is God. He's the only God. And so, church, do you see the answer that this, this text is giving to the question we started out with? You can't believe in this God and Allah. You can't believe in this God and at the same time believe that all paths, all religions lead to him. This God is an exclusive God. He can't be matched. He can't be compared. As we'll sing in a bit, behold our God, 
seated on the throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. What? Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. So, Christian, as we close, do you, do you live like that's true? Do you live like your God is the one true God? Mental assent is one thing, but if you truly believe this, then you'll understand that serving the God who's the one true sovereign Lord will mean everything. It'll mean giving yourself to him. It'll mean not holding back like Pharaoh. Confessing the Lord as God will mean taking him as Lord of your life. So, for me this morning, and I encourage you, church family as well, take stock. Are there areas of your life you're not willing to cede to the authority of this Yahweh? Are there things in your life you're not willing to give up in order to serve him? It's a joy having our friends from overseas with us and consider the report we've just heard from them. I'm not trying to lift them up as worthy of our worship, of course, but definitely worthy of our example, leaving their home and many of their comforts to preach Christ where he's not known. That's an example of what serving the one true God looks like. Self-denial, self-forgetfulness, giving ourselves over to the glory of God, realizing he's worth everything. Church, he's given himself for you. Will you give yourself for him? He demands everything. But praise him, he's worth everything. John Calvin famously called the, the heart an idol factory. Meaning it, it doesn't take much for us to manufacture things other than God worthy of worship. So as we think about God as the one true God, a, a good ending point would be to ask ourselves, who are we worshiping? What are we worshiping more than this Yahweh? One easy diagnostic for that is to ask yourself where you're the most anxious where you're the most flustered what you can't live without usually when you think about that you're seeing your idol you're seeing your god leisure relationship money sex pleasure when you see that Christian, do not despair. Seeing what your God is is just another merciful love of God to reveal that to you. So church, as a congregation, let's repent of lesser gods and turn our eyes to this one on the throne, the one holding the oceans in his hand, the one who gave his hands to be pierced for us, the one who indeed is coming back to save and to judge best way to respond to the one true God is to proclaim his praise. So let's do that now, but let's pray first. Lord, we do stand in awe of you this morning. We want to worship you as you deserve. We confess our weakness. 
Thank you for claiming us and making us your people. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that as we rejoice in our status covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would make us ever more increasingly devoted to his glory. We love you. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.